Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, July 13th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, an unusual plan to preserve abortion access in the Gulf South comes into focus. Could it work? And we learn about a white supremacist organization founded in Mississippi that terrorized the civil rights era South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers have banned almost all abortion on Mississippi soil, but one doctor is betting legislators won't be able to stop the procedure from being performed just miles off Mississippi's coast. California OBGYN Meg Autry is seeking $20 million to build a floating abortion facility in the Gulf of Mexico. The clinic would serve patients from Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Texas. Matt Steffi is a professor of constitutional and maritime law at Mississippi College School of Law. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance, the plan opens up a bevy of complex legal questions. The Constitution provides that the federal government has sovereignty over the navigable waters of the United States, which for uh, current purposes include major riverways, many uh, the Great Lakes, for example, and the coastal waters up to uh, 12 nautical miles out. Uh, A nautical mile is a little bit uh, longer than a statute or a land mile. So it gives uh, sovereignty uh, up to about uh, 12 miles. But there is a certain distance past which you enter so-called international waters, waters that are not claimed as the sovereign territory of any nation. And in the U.S., that is 12 nautical miles. Other countries have different ideas of what their sovereign boundaries are. Um, But for our purposes, it's about 12 miles. How is having a clinic like this that would be floating in the Gulf of Mexico legal? And what what makes it legal? it's, It's legal, but it's not free of legal issues or difficulties. Most, uh, many people are familiar with 
prior to the, or many people have heard that prior to the time when we had casino gambling uh, that we're familiar with now along the Mississippi coast, for example, that uh, there were uh, uh, gambling boats that would set out on a particular schedule from New Orleans, for example, um, float offshore a particular distance as defined by state law or even in the international waters where the gambling regulations wouldn't apply. Um, it's not that much different from imagining the way in which gambling and other activities are legal in Las Vegas and Nevada that aren't legal in Mississippi or that marijuana is legal in Colorado and it's not legal in Mississippi, that Mississippi's laws, Louisiana's laws, the U.S. laws don't extend everywhere. And beyond this 12-mile period, it's, uh, 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 it's free from most claims to uh, the sovereignty of the United States. Now, when I say it's not free of legal difficulties, the state and some countries have already uh, talked about taking this action if an, a, a ship providing abortion services were to moor offshore, drop anchor off, uh, off of its shores, that people shuttling to and from the boat might be arrested and prosecuted criminally, or at least the state could try to do so. In the U.S., we are constrained by the federal and state constitutions and our notions of due process. Other countries aren't the same way, and in other countries it can be even riskier. Now, I'm not sure exactly where that legal line will be drawn if this happens and when it's all settled, but, uh, you know, it's, it's possible a court could ultimately conclude that the Mississippi criminal jurisdiction wouldn't extend to a person leaving Mississippi for a boat offshore and returning to a state. That's possible. It's possible that it's outside the reach of the law, but it doesn't mean the state couldn't try. Couldn't The state could pass a statute addressing that behavior. A district attorney could uh, seek an indictment against a person and let them defend their actions in court. And even that is likely to deter a lot of people from trying something like this. While in general, we uh, it's understood that the laws of the U.S. or the state of Mississippi do not extend past 12 nautical miles. That's one thing. Whether Mississippi can have its laws address people leaving the state to go to the boat coming back is a more unsettled matter. What other challenges do you think might arise in Mississippi, um, whether it be uh, legal uh, in the court side or from the state lawmakers? Do you think there's going to be a lot of uh, – if this does come to fruition, do you think there will be some challenges that might pop up? Well, I do. I, I think there's going to be some concern for the the, the fact that, there, that, that a, a floating health care provider isn't going to be subject to – health inspection or the health and safety and medical licensure laws of the state of Mississippi. Now, it, it, it's possible that whoever operates the boat will be licensed according uh, to, to have a doctor on board and to perform procedures according to the country that the vessel originates from, the, the vessel whose flag it flies. So there may be a jurisdiction 
that regulates the medical aspects of this, the health and safety aspects of this, but it won't be Mississippi. What I think Mississippi uh, would have to contemplate is whether it wants to try to extend its sovereign reach to people who travel from Mississippi to the boat and back. Now, I think that's a highly questionable area. After all, uh, Mississippi can't make it a crime for you to go to Las Vegas and gamble in a way that's lawful there, but unlawful back home, right? That, that there's a general notion that there's a limit to the reach of a state's regulatory authority and criminal law. But if a company were to set up a shuttle service, a nautical shuttle, have a, a, a boat that runs back and forth to the abortion-providing ship, it's entirely possible that state lawmakers or state law enforcement might seek to address that. How do you think this could compare to casinos in Mississippi of the past where they had to float on barges just off the coast prior to Hurricane Katrina when lawmakers decided that it would be safer for those casinos to be docked on land? Well, I think that, that the difference is those casinos were operating pursuant uh, to a Mississippi law in order to try to comply with a Mississippi law. This is a vessel that intends to place itself outside the reach of Mississippi law. On the other hand, it does underscore the nautical hazards that everyone faces at sea. You could have a, a there, there's bad weather, there's piracy, there's the problems with the vessel that would make providing medical services at sea or receiving medical services at sea a more complicated and potentially perilous activity than doing it on land. So I think that, again, the casinos were trying to comply with Mississippi law. This provider would be seeking to avoid it. But the lessons of Katrina tell us just how dangerous the Gulf can be. Also, with Mississippi's coastline, Mississippi, compared to other states in the area, has a relatively large topography when it comes to small islands off the coast. Do you think that could play an, a role in defining where the state's jurisdiction is and how far out this boat would need to be? Well, th that's pretty clearly known. There's a lot of uh, activity, uh, commercial activity, oil and gas exploration, fishing, uh, Coast Guard activity. There's a lot of legal activity. I teach a course in admiralty uh, jurisdiction and maritime law that deals specifically with the questions of what laws speak to the Gulf of Mexico. So there's already a well-established legal framework that a uh, someone uh, seeking to try to find exactly where Mississippi's laws end can look it up. There's uh, actually a chart that would tell them. Is there anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about, you know, the complicated legal nature that this could be in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, I, I, I can, and I think this is one aspect of the when, – when part of what the, the Dobbs opinion said that it was doing was taking the Supreme Court out and try to depoliticize, in a way, the uh, contentious issue of access to abortion. And I think what we're going to see is a complicated and contentious legal framework on land and apparently at sea in its aftermath. 
Matt Steffi is a professor of constitutional and maritime law at Mississippi College School of Law. Coming up, we learn about a white supremacist organization founded in Mississippi that terrorized the civil rights era South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier. Millsaps College history professor Stephanie Rolfe is set to speak at noon today at the two Mississippi museums. She tells our Desiree Frazier her talk will focus on a southern white supremacist organization known as the Citizens Council. When the University Press of Mississippi decided to re-release the South Strikes Back by Hiding Carter III, which was published originally in 1959, a kind of real-time study of the, the rise of the Citizens Council in Mississippi. They asked me to write the introduction for it, um, you know, to sort of talk a little bit about how accurate Carter was when he was watching this all unfold and to kind of add to what what we've learned since then about the council and its reach and its popularity and um, its significance to political history in the United States. How would you describe the Citizens Council? The Citizens Council was an organization that sought members and leaders across localities throughout the state of Mississippi and eventually the South um, that were civic, you know, sort of civically engaged white guys who were bankers and attorneys and elected officials and, um, you know, sort of the white collar, um, the white collar residents of a county or a town or a capital city like Jackson. And they were committed to resisting implementation of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which said that maintaining segregated schools was unconstitutional and can no longer happen in the South. And so the council organized initially in 1954 to resist desegregation of public schools um, and sort of at the local level and ended up becoming a statewide organization and eventually a national organization that became pretty integrated with the political party system and um, contributed directly to the Southern shift into the Republican Party. Hotting Carter, what did he focus on? So Carter's work in The South Strikes Back is really focused on the role of the white moderate in Mississippi. He sees the rise of the Citizens Council as a product of white moderates not speaking up and offering proper leadership to white Mississippians during a period of time where they're consumed by fear. So his position is sort of a complex one. He he fears the kind of element that the Citizens Council is activating. Um, so even in the midst of the council's claims that it was an alternative to the Klan, Carter sees it very differently. He sees the Citizens Council as, um, while he recognizes their ability to draw in those white-collar professionals, he also understands that a bulk of the Citizens Council leadership and support is coming from the grassroots 
from that kind of white working class element that feels like it has more to lose from the desegregation of public public schools than maybe more um, maybe wealthier, better positioned whites in Mississippi who eventually are able to send their children to private academies when implementation um, of Brown takes place around 69 and 70. So, you know, throughout that book, which he writes in 1959, before the council has fully kind of reached its peak of influence, what he focuses on is sort of the way it's organized, and he focuses on, um, you know, sort of these these hypothetical situations if the council is is allowed to continue to grow unchecked. Um, but I think what he wants more than anything is he wants white moderates in the state, people like J.P. Coleman, for example, Governor J.P. Coleman, to step forward and to offer a more practical solution to resistance, um, one that is not as likely to unleash that violent element in Mississippi. Well, it sounds like um, the fear was perpetrated on everyone. It wasn't based upon race but based upon maintaining a a status quo, so to speak? Absolutely. I think that he talks about that quite a bit, you know, this idea that um, he sort of sees this period prior to the Brown versus Board of Education decision as um, an incredibly progressive period in Southern history, especially related to white journalists in the state who strike a more moderate position, people like his father, um, Hodden Carter Jr., Um, And so he sees the rise of the Citizens Council as a disruption to that progress. And he insinuates in some places in the book and then states more directly in other places of the book that he feels like if the South was left alone and white moderates took the lead, that eventually progress would naturally lead to desegregation, um, that racial equality would naturally happen. So, of course, in 1959, that's that's pretty naive and, and certainly shows the limits of a white moderate in understanding what the campaign for civil rights was really about. Um, but in equal measure, I think that that Hodding Carter III feels like the attacks on white moderates in the state Um, He fears that they have been silenced by the council and that they themselves are, in fact, experiencing a healthy level of fear about social ostracism, about economic, you know, intimidation tactics and things like that. And and that, you know, unfortunately, you know, really is sort of where most of his focus in the book is. He does have a chapter on civil rights activism. but in Carter's estimation in 1959, and I believe that he moves away from this position later in his career um, and, and speaks pretty candidly and, and becomes a leader in, in biracial coalition building and that sort of thing. But in 1959, he sees organizations like the NAACP as equally bad Disruptive. for the state and race relations as the Citizens Council. And so the reader will find in this re-release um, a really interesting position, and it's one that helps us better understand what those middle-of-the-road white people were thinking and, and you know, how attached they were themselves to the institution of segregation. Um, and there's quite a lot of ambivalence in the book in terms of, you know, what happens if, if we dismantle this system. This book 
in some aspects, would you say, reflects some of what we're dealing with today? You know, I was I was thinking about this last night and, and kind of reviewing um, some notes for the talk at History is Lunch. And, and it is, it certainly is a resonant moment for us right now to think about the limits of our of our historical perspective when we are living through troubling events that threaten the status quo. Um, that when we live through events where we feel like political leadership is not as um, is not as strong as it should be, and what can happen in the vacuum of that leadership that that you have more extreme organizations kind of fill that space because people really are hungry for an answer and for reassurance and for stability. And so, you know, while as historians, we're very careful not to read, you know, history too far into the present, we do take very seriously the prospect of, of looking at patterns over the course of history and, and being conscious of when those patterns begin to show up in our own time, while also recognizing that as we're living through it, we're not seeing the full picture. And historians a generation from now are going to be making, um, are going to be making judgments and arguments and reflecting on pieces of our history that we aren't quite able to get a full perspective on today. Stephanie Rolfe is a professor at Millsaps College. She'll speak at the two Mississippi museums at noon today as part of the museum's History is Lunch series. And on a final note, for the last 14 months, the steady hand at the wheel of Mississippi Edition has been our executive producer, Rob Lane. Rob's impact on the show could be heard in the many interviews he's conducted with experts and advocates and through the portfolio of produced segments that have aired here on Mississippi Edition. Segments like the 9-11 special All Eyes on Davis Wade and MPB News' examination of Confederate Memorial Day. Today is Rob's last day with MPB. He's returning home to Boston, where he will join the team at WBUR. Rob, MPB News and MPB Think Radio, thank you for your commitment to serving the people of Mississippi during your time here, and we wish you every success in your newest public radio adventure. This is MPB. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stay tuned for a full morning of Mississippi Radio coming up at 9. It's Fix It 101. At 10, it's Everyday Tech. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.